I would say play to your strengths, um, and that is to play your game rather than playing someone else's, and like, and being the master of uh, of your like, by by setting the rules for your your game, you can be the master of your game, and and so I I've sort of internalized that more and more over my life, and I would give that advice to my twenty five year old self. I think I would. I was probably doing that as a 25-year-old, but I just didn't know, and I would just now tell my 25-year-old self that more. Like, play to your strengths. Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Growth Everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs. They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue. Hey everyone, just a quick heads up that we're giving away a ebook called 29 Growth Hacking Quick Wins. We co-authored this book with Matan Griffel of One Month, and it'll give you a solid base on where you can create growth ideas from. So all you need to do is text quick tips to 33444. That's the word quick, Q-U-I-C-K, and tips, T-I-P, S is in sugar, to 33444, and you get instant access. All right, everyone. Today, we have Mamoon Hamid, who is a co-founder and general partner of Social Capital, which is a venture capital firm that is up and coming. I should say it's up and coming. Um, and I was actually part of one of their portfolio companies, Treehouse. So, Mamoon, it's great to have you on the show. How are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me, Eric. Yeah, thanks for being here. So, why don't you give us a little bit about your background and you know connect it to how it relates to where you are today? Sure. Yeah. So I, I've been uh, a technologist or thinking about and dreaming about technology since my earliest memories. Um, I remember as a child uh, growing up in Frankfurt, Germany, I used to consume uh, encyclopedias uh, by, by the volume and try to just get all this data into my, my mind. And uh, just I was a knowledge, you know, uh, cons- consumer of vast amounts of knowledge, and I used to ask myself, like, I used to, ha- I have to go to all these thick encyclopedia volumes. Why can't I just go to a, a computer or something like that? And I had a computer and ask the question that I want to have answered, like, what is the tallest mountain in the country of Bhutan, or what is the biggest lake in the state of Minnesota? And I couldn't do that at the time, but I thought, you know, wouldn't it be amazing? To be able to do that, and uh, and you know, we have that now. We've had it for the last fifteen years, and it's amazing to know that we have technology has enabled all that. And so uh, that's sort of fast forwarding in life. But it really, uh, I I you know, t- like a lot of technologists, uh, took a liking to computers and programming at a very early age. Uh, got into math and science, and uh, around the same time that I was growing up uh, as a young child in Germany. Uh, was also the sort of the space wars or like, you know, the, the, obviously the man on the moon in the 60s and then going fast forward, the Apollo missions throughout the 80s. And um, one of the most uh, vivid memories that I have as a young child was uh, that of the, the Challenger explosion in 19, I believe, 1986, January 1986. And, and, and it was one of those moments where I was like, I remember so vividly is because uh, one of my teachers was a finalist to go on that spacecraft uh, into outer space. 
And uh, he didn't, but another teacher did, and that teacher unfortunately lost their life along with six others uh, who were on that space mission. But it really, like, space was like another infatuation of mine was like, how, how do you get out in the outer space and how do I become an astronaut? And in order to do that, I should probably become an engineer or an aeronautics engineer. And uh, that led me to, down the path of engineering and uh, into college, uh, where I studied actually electrical engineering. And um, actually, electrical engineering also was a path into into NASA. And uh, so actually, I moved from from Germany, where I grew up, to uh, the U.S. I went to Purdue, where actually uh, most at that point uh, more astronauts had gone to Purdue than any other university in the in the world. And so uh, I ended up there, studied electrical engineering, uh, really got uh, really got into uh, semiconductor design and specifically, um, uh, you know, at the transistor level, laying out like, laying out chips, and uh, really became this fascination of mine, which was like you could go from something as vast as space down to like actually being interested in like something as minute as a transistor and how that was the atomic unit that uh, actually helped you help one build a microprocessor, which ran a bunch of software, which ran operating systems and computers, and you could do Microsoft Word and Excel, and you could design chips on on top of a computer. So I really fell into into uh, semiconductor design, and that led me actually to, to my first job out of college uh, in Silicon Valley. Uh, I went to go work for a semiconductor company called Xilinx, uh, where we designed um, programmable chips. And uh, I spent six my, the first six years of my career really sort of honing my skills as, as a you know person in technology in the semiconductor world, designing chips, and uh, in and around that world, and um, really uh, got to see. Uh, the story of a Silicon Valley company play out from a it wasn't a startup, but it was a, uh, a young company to a more mature company, and also actually more importantly during that time got to see the first dot com boom from sort of ninety seven to two thousand three. So the complete up and the complete down of that whole cycle, uh, which gave me appreciation of uh, you know companies like Google getting started, Yahoo getting started, and the rise of Amazon and the fall of Amazon and um, as an outside observer in Silicon Valley, really took a, in, in, a keen interest in the creation of businesses and uh, the rise and fall of these businesses. So, uh, and as a pretty young, I was a kid. I was actually 19 years old when I moved to Silicon Valley. Uh, I, I graduated college when I was 19, so I had a pretty, you know, from a pretty early age, started to appreciate all of these things that were happening in Silicon Valley. And, uh, and one thing that particularly interested me was how do you, these companies actually even get off the ground? You know, Xilinx, the company that I worked for, actually at one point was venture backed and uh, you know went public and you know had billions of revenue and but it got to start somewhere and uh, what all, I was infatuated with the notion of like how do these companies get started and where does the capital come from where the ideas come from where the people come from and um, which led me to think about venture capital as a as a place that I'd be interested in learning more about um, so actually my company Xilinx uh, had a venture fund and. Uh, I would get pulled into diligence projects to take a look at companies that we were uh, interested in investing in out of that fund. And that got me a further taste into evaluating companies as a quote-unquote corporate venture firm. So uh, as I got a taste of that, I I think I wanted to have more of it. And so I thought, well, well, what would it take for me to get into uh, a venture capital 
job and I had no idea what that meant really. I just was curious about it and I started reading up on it and learning about it. And uh, One thing that came up was, oh, you, you go to business school and you either go to Stanford or Harvard and maybe you have a path into a venture capital firm. You know, naive person that I was, I said, okay, sure, I'll apply to business school. And uh, I applied to one school, which is probably a bad idea. I applied to Harvard and I uh, somehow got in and I and I, I see that say that completely with all modesty because I I didn't know anyone gone to Harvard before, so I had no I had no idea what it took to get in. But somehow I think my story was different enough and um, I guess authentic enough to where I did get in, and I I did go and I learned about business in general, more about business in general. I mean, I think what you can learn inside of a classroom, and as you may know, like Harvard focuses on the case study method, and you go through. Over the course of two years, 200, 500 companies that you study, different aspects of their business. And it was great le- learning, but uh, r- the reason why I'd gone was like, hey, does it help me further my career of, or my in- intent of trying to see what venture capital is all about? So uh, actually, I actually interned for a small VC firm my first uh, year between uh, my first and second year of business school. And uh, eventually ended up at a VC firm in Silicon Valley out, out of business school, uh, a firm that actually specialized in semiconductors, uh, a firm called U.S. Venture Partners that, it, you know, it's uh, now it's about close to 40 years old, but at the time was about 30 years old. And there were some some very legendary semiconductor investors who would work there, and I really wanted to learn from them. And I, um, I valued the mentorship that I could get um, learning the venture capital business from the ground up. And I, I went there um, right out of uh, business school. And I spent six years there. And uh, uh, got a chance to invest in a number of companies uh, across that time. And, uh, you know, sort of fast forward to now uh, or fast forward to 2011, um, had reached a point where I'd become a partner at, at USVP. And I was thinking about sort of the next 30 years ahead and what that should mean for me and where I'd want to spend my efforts. And uh, at that point, uh, helped found uh, social capital with uh, two of my partners and um, yeah, that brings us to social capital now. So I've gone on for a, a long time here. So I'll I'll take a pause here, and Eric, and let you ask me questions. <laughs> no, no, th- this is a great. I think it's a great starting point for sure. Um, so I, I guess you know, f- founding social capital. I mean, I met Chamath in, in person before. He's done a lot of great things in the past, obviously. Um, and I guess how did you go about finding these really smart people to work with? Mm-hmm. So. Um, our, our other founders, Ted, Ted Maidenberg, who I used to work with at USVP. So we, we were both junior guys who grew, uh, rose to the ranks there and became partners um, together. And so we'd worked together really well to, and we we thought about, you know, if we we're going to do something uh, in the future, we thought about always doing it together. And so, and Jamath and Ted had worked together at AOL in the late 90s. So they were buddies from that time period. And so, and I knew Chamath from when he was at Mayfield. We were both sort of junior guys at at our uh, in 2006 at our VC funds. I was at USVP. He was at Mayfield. So uh, we had some uh, some common ground there uh, before he went to Facebook and had a, a great outcome there. So we all sort of knew each other. Uh, Chamath and Ted knew each other really well, and Ted and I knew each other really well. And Chamath and I knew each other okay. Uh, and, and so, but that's a I think. As a core founding team, it's important to have the prior working relationship and uh, also see like complementary sets of skills that allow you to be, you know, one plus one plus one is not just three, it's like 30. So, uh, and we thought that would be the case. And also, we had a, we were sort of at a similar point in our lives. We were all in our early to mid 30s. 
And we had a view of the world sort of looking 30 years out and thinking like, where is technology going to take the world in 30 years? And uh, that was, you know, if we talk about the mission of social capital, uh, which I can talk about now or you can, yeah. Uh, Okay, cool. So, you know, at Social Capital, our mission is to transform society by using technology to solve the world's hardest problems. And, you know, in our mind, technology is a, it's a leveler, it's a uniter, it's a force that can create equality and a level playing field for people from all walks of life. And it really drives everything that we do. And we think that technology has not done enough, uh, hasn't made a large enough difference in important areas like healthcare, education, financial services, areas that are really core, uh, are to the core of uh, social and economic inequality in the world. So we spend a lot of our time and capital investing in these areas. And, you know, if you look around the world today, there's just a lot of discord, a lot of unhappiness and it all like, you know, events from a, a week ago, Friday, you know, just right. all kinds of terrible stuff happening around the world. And, and, you know, I think we believe the root cause is that, you know, people lack the education, the, uh, the, the general systems of society that make them happy. You know, if you look at the happiest countries in the world, they're actually quite social, socialistic in nature from the Nordic countries like, you know, Scandinavian countries, Denmark, Norway, Sweden. And uh, there's a lot of systems of society that are provided by the governments that make those, ha- those people quite happy. And so we believe that technology can actually create more happiness by providing um, uh, this more level playing field. And, you know, we generally just believe that uh, we want to create a world we can all live in where it's more fair, it's equitable, it's irrespective of the kind of circumstances that you were born into. And it's a bit like, you know, um, I, I told you I grew up in Germany and a lot of Syrian refugees are now ending up in Germany. And how can that Syrian refugee kid that grows up in the same town as I did uh, have the same opportunities uh, that I, uh, you know, my kids have growing up in Palo Alto? And you know, if we really think the world is flat and technology is the ultimate leveler, you know, um, it, we we think that there's a lot of things that we can do to, you know, create the world that we want to live in and see like 30 years from now. So uh, it's really like a, a long-term bet that we're making um, in, in like, you know, and I say technology all the time. It's a very sort of broad base. I mean, technology is really just going to penetrate all parts of society. I mean, I, I think the, at, a, at the highest level view, um, there's a, you know, we talk about in, in our, inside of our firm, um, just like let's just look at the S&P 500 and uh, there's – uh, about twenty percent of the S and P five hundred today is in the in, te- in tech. So the S and P five hundred is about twenty trillion dollars. So twenty percent of that is about four trillion. In twenty forty five, in thirty years, we think that fifty percent of the S and P will be tech companies. This can be companies like Uber and Airbnb and Slack and other companies that are in healthcare. But generally, like they will have, there will be a strong technology component to the companies, to fifty percent of companies inside of the S and P five hundred. It may be even greater, but let's just take it's fifty percent. And so, and if you grow the S and P five hundred sort of linearly at the same growth rate of the last thirty years, it grows from twenty trillion to one hundred and twenty trillion, and that's about an incremental hundred trillion of market cap created. And if half of that comes from tech companies, that's like. 50 trillion being coming from tech and uh, or actually more than 50 trillion and, and that's a lot of value being created by tech companies 
And and so there's one thing that in order to make the the math complete, if we look at the average half life of a tech company or average half life of a company in S and P 500, it's like 13, 14 years, which means that effectively uh, there'll be 250 companies times two, so 500 companies created over the next 30 years that will uh, go in and out of the S and P 500 that are tech companies, or put it another way one in every like four to five weeks, which is kind of crazy to think about it that way, uh, which is really the opportunity that we as social capital has, have a, in front of us to help create lots of value for not only for the, the people that our companies touch, but also the people who invest behind us. Yeah, that's, that's super exciting. And I, I think, you know, what's, uh, you know, you're, you're talking about your mission. I, I think it makes sense to, you know, share some of the, the portfolio companies that you guys have, and then maybe even talk about the, the one that you're most excited about right now. Yeah, so uh, in the three areas that we spend a lot of our time, so uh, actually it's really five areas. So it's healthcare, education, uh, financial services, enterprise, and consumer. So in healthcare, one of our core areas of interest is uh, chronic disease management. So uh, uh, a large swath of you know the United States and you know worldwide of people in the world are. Uh, predisposed to diabetes or prediabetes and diabetes uh, or a whole host of other chronic diseases. So one of the areas we've really made our focus is chronic disease management. And we have companies across heart disease, uh, asthma and COPD, uh, diabetes, um, and Alzheimer's. So these are four of the top six chronic diseases. So like what these, all these companies do, they have some element of software. And with um, some even have some element of hardware. So, for example, in the case of the asthma company, it helps asthmatics manage their their disease. And we uh, they have a little hardware that sits on top of your inhaler. And the hardware uh, is like a little bottle cap that sits on top of an inhaler. If you've seen an inhaler, you've seen like it's like a little you know you compress down the medicine and you you know you. Uh, you ingest it uh, through your mouth, and so the bottle cap has a sensor built in for like environmental conditions because it actually ha- and has a cell phone chip built in uh, so that you can communicate the amount of medicine, the time, date, the conditions, and that goes into a cloud-based system that you have access to on your mobile phone. Your doctor has access to your your family members have access to if you want to provide it to them, uh, but it, it tries to get you to adhere and uh, given the conditions that are around you to take your medicine at the right time and it's managing helping people manage their diabetes similarly we have a company that does that for for uh sorry that's for for asthma and COPD. similarly we have a company that does that for for diabetes uh and then there's a alzheimer's company and uh, the heart disease company so so really it's uh how do you and that's a purely how do you help people live happier healthier longer lives uh, with existing conditions, uh, and hopefully, like you can actually help them uh, eliminate the condition in some in some cases. But really, there's there's a billions, if not trillions, uh, that goes into managing um, or dealing with chronic disease in in the United States alone. I think you know the high level numbers: about three trillion is spent on healthcare, and um, a third of that is related to chronic disease. So there's a a, a lot of money that can be 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 saved by you know software and, uh, and hardware. And, um, you know, if we, if we had our way, you know, we'd take that three trillion and make that, you know, uh, one tenth of what it is just by, by being, you know, getting people the right drug at the right time or getting them to help manage their disease at at the right time. So that's, that's in healthcare. And we've got a a number of other investments in healthcare. Um, in, in education, 
uh, one of the exciting companies that we have there is it's called Brilliant, and it's a community for really smart kids or kids who are really interested in math and science to compete with each other and collaborate with each other around math and science questions. And so we ha- we run these math olympiads on Brilliant, and um, you've got kids who are twelve year olds from Indonesia who are who are just brilliant, and they're competing with kids who are you know, uh, 17 from Germany or like it's all kinds of ages and all kinds of level uh, levels of expertise. And just what's fascinating is to see how uh, intellect and smarts is spread across the world and how awesome it would it be for, for these really smart, bright kids who probably wouldn't have the right, uh, wouldn't have the opportunity to, uh, to thrive in their respective countries give them an opportunity to thrive and to first identify them and then give them the opportunity to thrive, whether it be to go to a certain university or to get a job at Facebook or take a, learn some other skills that will allow them to become a better contributor to overall society and GDP creation. So, uh, you know, Brilliant has hundreds of thousands of kids now that use it on a, on a monthly basis. It's a really, really cool product. And, uh, you know, it's, I think it's just a brilliant, it's just the beginning of what, what it can do. So and and you know your former company Treehouse is also an interesting one, in which you know as you may know is you know has more quote unquote you know trains more people to code than uh, anywhere else in any u- university in the in the world. So uh, there's companies like Treehouse as well, uh, but but overall there's a lot of really exciting companies around education, healthcare, and yeah, financial services. And I can talk about maybe the financial services piece where you know one of the key uh, core thesis areas is, you know, software eats the human being that provides the service, the financial service. Like today, it's the, the bank teller or like the, the wealth advisor. And uh, we have a company called Wealthfront, which you may know that uh, is nice. effectively like, you know, anybody can have a wealth advisor now. And uh, it, based on your life profile, you, you, you know, you, you make, you, you set, set it and forget it and you, you just do fine. And rather than giving you know, one percent of your the assets that they manage uh, for pr- providing below market returns, which is generally the case for most wealth advisors. Right. Cool. Yeah, I, I think that's great. I mean, you know, look at looking at all the portfolio companies. I mean, you know, when you did those slides, and we'll, we'll talk about this in a second, but um, you know, you have I think uh, what's Box is in there, Slack is in there, and a lot of great other companies, uh, Wealthfront, uh, Home Hero, Treehouse, just a ton of them. So let's let's go to those slides really quick. I, I uh, sure. Presentation was about uh, why does shit get funded? So, Mamun, why does shit get funded? Yeah, <laughs> there, it's a there's a variety. There's uh, hundreds of reasons why or why stuff doesn't get funded. So, uh, my slide, uh, the slides that I you know uh, I shared a while ago, it's actually beginning of the year, was more around uh, companies that get funded in the software space, specifically so- software as service companies. And, and, and there, you know, our very high level thesis is that we want to back companies that have a daily use case where there are people inside of an organization, inside of a company that use the product on a daily basis. Things like Box, things like Yammer, things like Slack. Um, and that, those are all three products that get used across the whole company. Uh, and we love companies and products like that. Uh, then there are companies that we back that are used on a daily basis, but by individuals inside of a specific part of the company, like in sales, uh, you have products like ClearSlide or in marketing, you have products like Intercom 
And in HR, uh, you have products like Greenhouse, which is an applicant tracking software system. So uh, but, but what we're looking for is very much like what's the tool out there that people use to get their job done every day that sits open next to that browser tab, next to your email, or next to your Slack now. Um, it's that, but at the second or third tab that you have open to get your job done. And that's typically what the shit that we are funding. Got it. Okay. So I, I think, you know, in, in those slides, I mean, you, you talked about something that you, you, the, the coin, you, the term you coined is quick ratio. So can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. Uh, so the quick ratio is really just a, a simplistic measure of the new revenue that you're adding on a monthly basis and, and divide that by the, the revenue that you're losing in that, that given month. And um, I'll give you sort of the, the history on the quick ratio. Uh, going back to business school, I remember there was a thing called the quick ratio, which measured your, your, your debt load to your actual assets, uh, assets and liabilities. It's a, it's a ratio between that. And I thought, man, like that's a really interesting way to think about even like the software com- types of software companies that we're looking at. So uh, really, like if, if I can look at a company's quick ratio on a month-to-month basis, even just for a, like a window of three months, I feel like I know so much about the company. So, and I said, well, what is the right number for the quick ratio to be? And I, I just kind of came up with four sort of out of thin air, but then I sort of back-tested it against companies that we've looked at, but also like tested it against actual revenue numbers. It actually really made uh, somehow a lot of sense and it was like wow this is brilliant actually it works back tests really well against some of the other companies that we've backed in the past so really like the components of a quick ratio are it's the the brand new revenue that you add from new companies new logos uh, and then you add on top of that is the revenue that you generate from existing customers that are upgrading uh, their accounts and then you uh, you divide that by the the companies that decide they don't like your product, they they churn, they they're, they the companies have died, or they just don't like being customers anymore. So you divide that by that number, and and add to that, that the number of companies who decided they wanted to downgrade their service. So it's a really f- simply kind of like four components that uh, make up the quick ratio, and it really gives you a, a really good sense of uh, your business at a given point in time, you know, on a month to month basis. And so uh, we've been using that across our portfolio of SaaS companies now for uh, for the past couple of years, and it really um, is a geared, really good heuristic into the health of a business. Okay, so my my understanding is, you know, if the quick ratio is under four for business, that means churn is working too much against them, and it's going to slow their growth down. That it, it might not be worth investing in them. Uh, yeah, and I think four is, you know, uh, I would say one is ba- really bad. Okay, that means like for every dollar that you're adding in a month, you're losing a dollar every month, which is like you pretty much you need to figure out why people are giving up on your product uh, because every sale that you're making is offsetted, offset by the the loss of a customer because you just have done a bad job onboarding, keeping those customers happy. So you have a, a core product issue uh, with a quick ratio of one. Quick ratio of two is two to one. So like you're adding two dollars and you're losing a dollar. Yeah, something's really still not working because you actually have to expend effort into selling. So even if you're adding two dollars, you're losing a dollar automatically. Like your net is just you're adding a dollar, and that's be, you're spending money to acquire that dollar. So again, two is bad. I'd say um, at three, you're starting to get in a zone of like let's dig into why it's three and why it's not higher. 
at, at four, you're starting to look at a very uh, a pretty healthy business. Uh, and you know, I have to caveat it by saying a, a quick ratio doesn't really uh, apply to businesses that are just getting started. You know, uh, yeah. you're not going to have churn in year like month four, five, six, first year. So you have to take it into context. Really, the quick ratio starts really applying in, I'd say, month eighteen onwards or month twelve, definitely onwards and for sure at month 24 of a business month 24 of revenue uh it should be pretty insightful got it okay now i I know you guys do a lot in in the education space so when i look at education companies especially the ones doing software as a service let's let's say you know let's look at the big ones you know churn can be anywhere from 15 to 30 percent which is extremely high so um doesn't that bring it down significantly i mean you know I'm, i'm just thinking off the top of my head i don't i don't know what the numbers are yeah, and I think you're right. I mean, if uh, in a subscription business, the quick ratio will always not be great. And it may not be a great measure because in a business like that where you're doing subscription, uh, like you know, consumer subscription services like Spotify, uh, Netflix, Pandora, even Treehouse, you know, you could have a quick ratio that's not as high, uh, but, but there's a sense of you can spend X dollars to get Y dollars and you have lifetime value expectations which uh, don't really figure into the quick ratio as much. So, um, again, it's not the end all, uh, but I think we find that like businesses like Workday, which are like large enterprise sales, uh, very sticky customers, have a really high quick ratio. But then very transactional businesses that have, uh, you know, like let's say a dating app will have a very low quick ratio. So you can apply the quick ratio to consumer businesses as well but the quick ratio band will be a lot tighter. It will be, uh, it will be probably like you know, companies will have a quick ratio, you know, anywhere from like you know, one to two and a half, three. I think a consumer business that has a quick ratio probably four is probably a fantastic business. And um, and there's probably like you know, uh, Slack is not a consumer company, but like let's say Dropbox. I wonder what their quick ratio is. I imagine it's probably pretty good. Got it. Okay. Yeah, I think it's going to be really important for us to to link to these slides in the show notes so everybody understands kind of where this is all coming from. But I think especially if you're trying to get funded in the software space, you have to take a look at these slides. Um, okay. So I mean, you know, when when people are are raising uh, raising funds, I mean, what are the biggest mistakes you see people making in general? Maybe like a top two or three. Um. Yeah, I think uh, number one, uh, overcomplicating your story. Uh. I think it's important for uh, us as investors to see a clarity of thought in into how you're thinking about your opportunity, because if you don't have clarity of thought in how you present it to us, uh, it will be hard for you to present that same clarity of thought to your employees, who will probably c- continue to struggle to find like what the north star is for you as a company, and so uh, and that applies to fundraising, but I think it also applies to how you do your thing inside of the company. So uh, I, I think it's, it's, it goes sort of a couple ways. So that, I think that if you look at some of the most successful businesses of all the time, they're pretty easy to explain, you know, really just pretty straightforward from, from the consumer side to the enterprise side, you know, whether it's uh, Uber, Amazon, Google, Facebook, you know, Spotify, Pandora, you know, anything like that. Some, or whether it's on the enterprise side, you know, uh, Box, Salesforce, uh, Workday, uh, Zendesk, you know, pretty concur, you know, pretty straightforward to exp- explain what they do um, as a company. Um, so 
and even these companies got became much, you know, they became tens of billions of dollars before they had to think about like what the next thing was. So uh, I find that a lot of times um, there's an overcomplication of the stated goal of what the company is doing. I said that is one. Um, uh, two is, like I said, there's there's many. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's uh, maybe. Uh, even just, I guess, it's, it's a, a lot is a, a telling of the story. Like how you, there, we look for mission-driven uh, founders who are solving a problem that they've seen uh, or firsthand observed and felt the pain. And that's why they're actually building a company around it. And I think if, the, if it lacks that, that uh, the mission-driven nature, it's, it's harder to really get excited about a company because... Uh, you can't just be like, hey, uh, I read a magazine article and I thought this would be a great idea to start a company around and you have no passion around it. There's no vision around it. You didn't, never felt the pain point. And, and just generally, those are not interesting companies. They don't amount to being interesting companies. Like some business school student did a report and they found that this was like an interesting area to make money in. So, and I would say that's also like a mistake is like if you're going down the path of like you're doing a company because you feel like there's money to be made. Um, I, I just don't think those are the kind of companies that we'd at least back. Others may, but we don't do those. Got it. Okay. So those are the top two right there. Um, so you know, I want to back up a little bit. You, you talked about how you decided to go to Harvard Business School, but you know, if you had to give like a, like, you know, the beginner's guides or the, you know, the practical guide to becoming a VC, like, you know, what would you say are, where would you say people can start? Is there a specific book uh, that people can read or website? Because you know, there's a lot more information now. I'm just wondering how you would think about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think there's a, a, a good book. Someone was asking me this question. I, I, I'm trying to think of um, what I actually did to, as I was becoming a VC, I went through a, this program called the Kaufman Fellowship. And it was actually instrumental in in helping me learn more about how to become a venture capitalist because there was a lack of academic training. There's a lack of just books about the topic. And um, there's been a lot of books written about entrepreneurship, and but not as many books because there's just the universe of venture capital and venture capitalists is much smaller. So uh, one thing that can, you know, one can learn from some of these entrepreneurship books about what it, means to be an entrepreneur and then that gives one more compassion and empathy for how one should be a venture capitalist. I would say that's it. Um, but there is a book that, you know, Brad Felt wrote, it's called uh, Venture Deals. Yep. And I think that's a, a good one. Uh, I think uh, there's, uh, there's another one that um, Jeff uh, Buskang at um, uh, Flybridge wrote. It's, uh, it's called Mastering the VC Game. And so there's, there's a couple of books out there, but also I think the Kauffman Foundation is a, a great place to learn more about venture capital. And I actually it was like a two-year program that I went through to learn more about, uh, to actually go through a, a class of other 24 other young venture capitalists to, to learn how the business of venture capital actually works and to do your first deal, term sheets, uh, how to deal with entrepreneurs, how to deal with internal partners, you know, how to deal, deal with LPs, legal stuff. Uh, so all kinds of stuff. And I actually um, now uh, frequently go back and, 
uh, teach a, a session on uh, starting a firm. And so, uh, but that's, that's actually a, you apply to the fellows program. You actually go through a whole process and get admitted to it, quote unquote. Uh, but you know, I, I think if you're one is just interested in learning about venture capital, those two books are probably a good way to start. Got it. Now, what if somebody is not that good with numbers? Let's say they're a creative entrepreneur and they just don't care for the numbers that much, but they want to be a VC. Where do they start? Do they go back to school? Um, it, you know, like I think, uh, at the Series A and the seed, you know, it's not about the numbers, but one has to, in their mind, like, or even like in a simple spreadsheet, be able to make sense of numbers and like what the markets will look like and market size, the enterprise value based on you know profitability metrics or revenue metrics and growth, and uh, so yeah, one has to have a semblance of like how to make sense of numbers, and I think um, you, you know I don't know what to say, but like if you're not numeric or analytical in nature, can you be a good venture capitalist? I think you still can. Uh, but I, I do find that because a lot of the stuff that actually matters most is the soft stuff. It really it is really the, you know, like the EQ uh, type of stuff because you're dealing with people and expectations and um, a lot of times missed expectations and um, a lot of dynamics inside of your partnerships. So it's a lot of the soft stuff that matters. But I think I think you could probably still be pretty successful at a venture capitalist if you weren't t- completely analytical. Uh, so do you have to go go to school for that? I don't know. Like I think you just read a bunch of stuff and you t- try to get smart about like uh, what it takes to understand business models because that's what we do. We just, we apply our pattern recognition a lot of times to businesses and say that's a bad business, that's a good business, that's a bad business. And so you, but if you can't figure out what's a good business and a bad business, you're not going to pick the right business. Right. Okay. Now, I want to rewind a little bit and talk about when you guys were first starting out. So, you know, when you guys are, you guys are still relatively new right now, but when you're just starting out, I mean, how do you go about generating good deal flow? Because you guys have a lot of great companies right now. Yeah, I think deal flow comes through um, prior relationships uh, in terms of CEOs that you've invested in, you're on the boards of where they actually like you and they tell other CEOs who come talk to them about seeking advice on their company. So a lot of times, you know, it's, it's you, you're getting deal flow through your own network of people that you've worked with before or you're on the boards of. And I think typically it's also the best, these are the best sources uh, is from qualified people that you trust in your networks. And, and uh, it's always great to get the deal from one of your CEOs. Like it's great to, you know, to get a, a deal sent over from Aaron Levy because he's now had someone who he's, mentored or someone who's come to seeking his advice about a company and they ask, hey, so who should I talk to about raising my, my seed round or my Series A? And you know, he refers you over to you know, the people he likes as investors. And so uh, that's always been a, a great source of deal flow for us. And, uh, and then beyond that, I think you know, it, it is things, you know, people write blogs, people tweet, people do conferences and you know uh, appearances and uh, and that creates you know public knowledge of what you're working on and uh, that always you know is a reason for deal flow or people at least like remember who you are and like hey I need to find a way to get to Mamoon because uh, these guys are actually investing in healthcare and um, and I'm doing a healthcare company so there's a lot of that that happens um, but typically people find a way to get to us through um, you know a friend or a friend of a friend. Um, and you know, um, uh, that's sort of how things happen for us. Got it. Okay, great. Now, 
Can you talk about one big struggle you faced while growing social capital? Yeah, I think the struggle is constantly like, you know, uh, not missing things. And uh, you always wonder if you're going to miss the next, you know, Uber or Slack or, you know, there's constant paranoia about like, hey, let's make sure we, we're, you know, we're open for business and people are coming to talk to us uh, about. Yeah, I totally. There's constant FOMO in our business. It's, it's, uh, it's keeps, it's, you know, it's, you're, you're so right. It's like, you, you always feel like you're only as good as your last investment. And, um, and that's sort of the nature of technology. It's like that constant, like entrepreneurs have the paranoia that you've got to have a competitor who's going to, small competitors going to eat their lunch from underneath them. And, uh, investors have a similar sort of paranoia that, you know, they're going to miss the next big deal because there's like, they're not around, they're not talking to the right entrepreneurs. And so, uh, yeah, that's probably the biggest challenge. And how do you have a system in place where you can actually make sure that you're seeing everything? And if something comes, you're like really jumping on top of it um, quickly and have a process in place so that you can make good decisions around something that you think is really worthy of looking at. And, uh, you know, we've, we've made mistakes over the past four years and missed things. Either we, but what's, what's worse is not even seeing something. It, you know, like we saw Uber, you know, three years ago at the round that was, I think it was, it was the $250 million round. And I would say at least, you know, we saw it versus like, you know, not seeing anything, not being worthy enough to even see something. So, um, uh, so we want to make sure that we see as much as we can and, you know, and then make a decision um, and then stand by our decision that, yeah, we made it for the right reason or we missed and do, doing actually we do a lot of postmortems around our decision making uh, in investments that we actually made and the investments we didn't make so that we learn from those mistakes got it okay makes sense so i just have a few more rapid fire questions for you cool. um so what's one piece of advice you give to your 25 year old self i would say play to your strengths um and that is to play your game rather than playing someone else's and like and being the master of, of of your like by by setting the rules for your your game, you can be the master of your game, and and so I I've sort of internalized that more and more over my life, and I would give that advice to my twenty five year old self. I think I would I was probably doing that as a twenty five year old, but I just didn't know, and I would just now tell my twenty five year old self that more, like play to your strengths. What's the story behind that? You, you know, it's a, you can't try to be someone that you're not, uh, and there's enough. By 25, you're pretty fully formed as a human being, you know, as physically but also mentally. You can learn things, and I have this philosophy in life. It's called the shopping cart mentality. You walk into a grocery store and you pick up, you know, like the soda that you like, and you pick up the cereal that you like, and you don't have to pick up everything. You just pick up the things that you like in a grocery store, and uh, and, and so uh, so you pick up different things from different people, which you perceive are their strengths, and you're like, but if you try to be someone else, it's not going to work. And I think uh, that's sort of the philosophy behind that is you're kind of fully formed and you have strengths already. And how do you exploit to the max your strengths as opposed to trying to be someone else? Got it. Makes perfect sense. So in an ideal day, I know your days are probably crazy, but how would you structure your ideal day? How does that look? Yeah. uh, (laughs) uh, My days these days are not ideal. So uh, I would structure them where... I have time to in the morning do email, and then have like a couple of hours to think and to write, and 
think about the future, think about the things I'm doing right, things I'm doing wrong. And then, you know, work with some of uh, the companies I work with, I'm on the boards of, meet a few companies. Uh, the, the first thing, which is email, I do already. The, the third and the fourth thing, which is working with companies, being on boards, I already do. The fourth thing, which is to meet with companies, I already do a lot of that. But I don't get to think, read, or write as much as I want to. Okay. Makes sense. So basically, you'd be able to ideally write more, contribute more content, and then uh, build, a, build a bigger brand. Is that right? That and also just like it, it, writing allows you to think about what you are doing and what you're not doing. True. So uh, it, it's, I wish I had more time to think and write. And it's, and part of it, like if you write, then you want to, and you share, it certainly uh, creates more brand and uh, what you represent, of course. Totally. Okay. What's one must read book you'd recommend to everyone? You know, a book that I recently read uh, that I liked a lot. Um, there's a book called Blue Ocean Strategy. Have you read it? Mm. Great book. Great book, right? Yep. It, it's a, I mean, it's a pretty well-read book. It's a, it's a, but if you have not read it, uh, it's a great book about you know, competition and how most, most of us try to go into the bloody waters where there's already too much competition and we don't think about the – and where there's no profits left. And we rather than think about going into blue oceans where there's untapped new markets – that are ripe for growth. And so I like that book a lot. Uh, if you're, you know, going back to the SaaS stuff that we were talking about, software companies, I, I really think for every software investor, um, reading Mark Benioff's book is, uh, or software entrepreneur reading Mark Benioff's book, Behind the Cloud, is probably uh, worth the read. Um, pretty, it's a quick read. Cool. Great. So we got two books. We'll, we'll drop those in the show notes. And one more thing I'd recommend everyone take a look at, which I really uh, religiously look forward to each Sunday, is the snippets from Social Capital. So if you go to the website, I mean, we'll link to it too, but I get a lot of insight from that because it's actually just stuff that Social Capital is looking into and what they think is interesting. And that gives me perspective as well. So thank you for putting that stuff out. Cool. Awesome. Well, uh, our team does a great job and I'll, I'll pass on the 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 positive comments. Yeah, cool. So, Mamoon, this has been great, but uh, what's the best way for people to find you online? Uh, well, there's always the Twitter, you know, Mamoon Ha at, on Twitter, and then and uh, my email is just mamoon at socialcapital.com. Got it. Okay, great. Well, everyone, this is Mamoon Hamid from Social Capital. Make sure you check out what they do. They are a great venture firm. Mamoon, thanks so much. Thank you, Eric. I appreciate it. Hey everyone, just a quick heads up that we're giving away a ebook called 29 Growth Hacking Quick Wins. We co-authored this book with Matan Griffel of One Month, and it'll give you a solid base on where you can create growth ideas from. So all you need to do is text QUICK TIPS to 33444. That's the word QUICK, Q-U-I-C-K, and TIPS, T-I-P-S as in sugar, to 33444, and you get instant access. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Everywhere. If you loved what you heard, be sure to head back to growtheverywhere.com for today's show notes and a ton of additional resources. But before you go, hit the subscribe button to avoid missing out on next week's value-packed interview. Enjoy the rest of your week, and remember to take action and continue growing.